0: Hello, Elm Town! It's Kevin Yank, your friendly host, back after a bit of a hiatus, and I'm very excited to say we have Richard Feldman on today to talk about his long-awaited book. Hi, Richard. Hey, great to be here. Great to be back. Yeah, absolutely. This is not the only episode of Elm Town I am recording today, so listeners, uh, watch your feeds. There's more on the way. Today, we're here to talk about Elm in Action, which I understand is finished,
1: yeah I mean I'm I'm like doing the final uh, editing pass to fix typos and stuff but uh, yeah I mean all the chapters are out anybody can go read it yeah
0: <laughs> if you buy the book today you get all of the chapters which is something I'm sure you've been dying to be able to say for a while now
1: yeah Especially because of the way that I ended up writing the book, I, I wasn't really 100% confident that it was all going to get wrapped up the way that I was hoping. I mean, I had a plan, but I, you, know, you never really know until it all comes together if it's, if it's going to fit the way you hope it will, and I'm glad that it did.
0: Well, we should talk more about that, but before we get into it, a couple words about our sponsors. First of all, CultureAmp, my employer. They are. I'm, I'm sitting in the CultureAmp office at the moment in our recording booth, and they don't mind me spending some work time on making this show, so thank you to Cultramp. We're based in Melbourne, Australia. Our product team is anyway, and if if you're looking for a job and you're anywhere in this neck of the woods, uh, you should come and work at Culture Amp, where you would get to write Elm in production. Check out Cultramp.com slash jobs for all the roles we have open at the moment, and take a look at that front-end engineering role in our Melbourne office. And also our old friend Joel Claremont, uh, J. Claremont, C-L-E-R-M-O-N-T, on Twitter, the organizer of the Milwaukee Functional Programming and Milwaukee PHP Meetups. Uh, He continues to pay the bills for our hosting, and we thank him very much for it. So, Richard, for those who you know might be new to Elm Town, do you want to introduce yourself?
1: In a funny turn of events, I often uh, start by introducing myself as the author of Elm in Action, which I guess <laughs> on this particular episode <laughs> is maybe obvious. So, I am that. Uh, I also work at No Red Ink. We make software for English teachers to help them teach writing. Um, I've been there for coming up on six years, actually. I'm um, about a month shy of my six-year mark there. And uh, so I've done a lot of Elm stuff over the years. I uh, work on Elm Test, and uh, I created Elm CSS and JSON Decode Pipeline Library. And uh, those are, I guess, the most well-known packages that I have, but they're in various different namespaces now. But
0: (laughs) Since we've been away for a little while, uh, it might be worth kind of checking in on each of those projects and the Elm community in general. Uh, Like, What are you actively working on at the moment? So, right
1: now, uh, Elm test because uh, there's a new uh, beta of the Elm uh, 0.19.1, which for Elm users is backwards compatible, but some of the behind the scenes stuff changed. And so, because Elm test was relying on certain internals working, like having certain formats, like basically incremental. Uh, incrementally compiled data formats. Um, yeah, right. I'm having to make some updates to that. Uh, so I'm actually the bottleneck right now. So uh, <laughs> it's it's entirely possible that Elmo.19.1 would be out right now uh, if I were done, but I'm not quite done yet. So
0: I dragged my heels on the last Elm and Elm test upgrade for one of my personal projects. We definitely use... L nineteen and Elm test here at work, but uh, one of my side projects I only just recently upgraded to L nineteen, and I was like, "Hey, is there an Elm test that works with this?" And of course, it it did; it worked right out of the box, and uh, um, I was really happy to see I didn't have to turn off my unit tests temporarily.
1: Yeah, so this is actually one of the like learnings that we had from the O dot nineteen release, which was about a year ago. Um, yep. uh, basically, the the concern was like. Um, if we release the application without the test stuff, it just causes mm. problems for people because they're in this weird spot where they're like, oh, I feel like I should upgrade, but I don't want to turn off all my tests, so I shouldn't mm. upgrade, so what should mm. I do? So we're like, you know what, let's just coordinate and make sure that like everything's ready to go and you know you can run your tests." Because kind of one of the things we talked about for a future Elm release is the idea of incorporating elm test into like the actual application binary itself so just making it a, a formal first class part of elm rather than a separate tool um but that's like a you know potential future project that's not uh, going to happen for this release certainly but anyway that's a, I guess a bit of a tangent
0: no that's that's interesting to hear so we could we could one day look forward to elm space test being one of the like top level commands of the elm binary yeah, and th- that unlocks a number
1: of uh, potentially interesting other avenues as well, but again, kind of a tangent.
0: Has has anything like is anything significant changing in Elm Test and its capabilities for this release or is it really just like turning the crank to make sure it's compatible with the new version?
1: Yeah, pretty much the latter. I mean, the the goal is just that, uh, you know, you can continue to use Elm tests and it'll work exactly the same way as it did in 0.19. Like, we really want this um, to be a release that is, it just, you know, feels like uh, just a strict upgrade and you don't have to do any work. The, uh, the last point release that we had like this was, I believe, 0.15.1, which was a Memorable release for me because that was the one that introduced good error messages.
0: What an 0.0.1 that is. That's like, uh, <laughs> it's f- funny, the giant minor releases.
1: There's going to be even more of that, like error message improvement in this one. I don't know if you tried the beta, mm. but um, that's like one of its highlights. That and uh, faster incremental compiles and a few other things, uh, bug fixes and whatnot.
0: I love a good polish release like that. It's, it's like all the good news, none of the bad news.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think uh, you know a good amount of it is kind of like O dot nineteen was a, a much bigger overhaul of the compiler, and you know that sort of left a lot of like I mean, even though in terms of public facing APIs, it wasn't a big change from O dot eighteen, but as far as like the compiler internals, it was. And so there's some stuff that was actually like kind of a re- regression, which is like why Try Elm on the website, well, you know, wasn't up until Evan got mm-hmm. that working with um, O dot nineteen one, and like debug flag had some issues and stuff, but. Anyway, yeah, lots of lots of polish and lots of sort of stability improvements, I guess, just to, you know, make Elm even more reliable than it already was.
0: How about outside of your own projects? Uh, is there anything you're excited about in the Elm universe at the moment?
1: Honestly, the, the thing that I'm most excited about is also related to testing. So we've been working on a draft. This has kind of gotten put on hold for the sake of the, the release, but um, sure. I'm excited to get back to it. Uh, we've been working on a draft for trying to figure out a nice API for testing effects, which is to say directly Ooh. testing commands and task uh, without having to sort of like wrap those in your own you know API to make it testable. Um, uh-huh. This for me is is kind of like a, I don't know if it's like my white whale or my holy grail or what, but it's something I've been chasing for a very long time now. And it turns out it's uh, it seems like uh, a very achievable, but at the same time, also incredibly tricky API to come up with a design that feels sufficiently powerful and also sufficiently nice.
0: Right. So uh, talk me through that for a second, because I'm not quite getting my head around it. I, okay. My understanding right now is that if you've got an update function, for example, and under some conditions, it should return a specific command, you can write a test that says, is the return value that command? Is that right? Not
1: quite. Oh. So here, here are some tricky situations to think through. Suppose I have uh, two tasks chained together with and then. Like, for example, mm-hmm. I have a task that says, give me the current time. Uh, yeah. And then after that, based on the current time, I want to send an HTTP request, which includes, as part of its URL, that timestamp or, or part of its yep. payload.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, how would you write a test that checks for that? You can't just say like, oh, if it equals this task that has this thing inside of it. Like you, you need to do some simulation work to say, well, yeah. okay, let me assume that uh, like pretend that it gives me back this time and then yep. pretend that the you know the server responds with this and I mean there's there's all a whole lot of uh, simulation and stuff. And and in a lot of languages the way that this is done is through mocking. And yep. the the term that I've been using in my head for like what we want to try and do instead is sort of like reverse mocking or like inside out mocking or something like that, where mm. rather than setting up an entire mock universe, what you do instead is on a case by case basis, you sort of specify, uh, the, the API leads you to specify exactly the missing information necessary to write your test. So in the case of that test, the missing information would be, okay, well, what time is it right now? If we're simulating this, you know, we're not doing real side effects, we're not actually running the HTTP requests, What is the simulated time that you want? And the API would, like, it wouldn't compile unless you provided that. And then it also would say, okay, if you want to assert that that simulated time made it into the HTTP request, then, okay, we can do that, no problem. And then if you want to assert that the server came back with some response that also incorporated that information, then you need to simulate that.
0: Hmm. So the Elm runtime has a relatively constrained number of managed effects, and you're just kind of imagining what if we could supply those to our tests? Exactly, yeah. So
1: so this is something that is a, a new design space to explore because as far as I'm aware, Elm is the only programming language that has this where yeah. you, you really don't have unrestricted side effects like the, that could be arbitrarily extended by FFI, you can actually enumerate here are mm. literally all the effects you can do, which means that you can make an API that actually covers all of them. As a consequence of that, like we've had a, a few different like meetings with like me and Evan and <laughs> like several other Elm test contributors and, and just like talking through these, um, these different like situations, um, and scenarios and potential APIs because yeah, it's, it seems to be a pretty unexplored, uh, space, but the payoff for me is, is really exciting because, when combined with all of the things that you can already do in Elm tests, such as testing views, like testing UIs, all without bringing up a browser or a real backend, it would really mean that we could have like complete end-to-end tests of your entire program where you could even do stuff like fuzzing on your uh, the entire workflow of your program while simulating a mock backend, and still not needing to bring up a browser and just not really having any edge cases there like not having any situations where you're missing something it's like well the only yeah. thing that you're really missing is like i guess we're not simulating what if something in the JavaScript is mutating a prototype and doing something weird to change how HTTP requests work, you know, something like that. But, you know, within the with the assumption that uh, you're just running plain vanilla Elm code in a normal browser, I mean, you really could simulate everything and have the tests run super fast and get to write them all in Elm. And that's very exciting to me.
0: That is cool. It's exciting that Elm, by virtue of being like quite a different take on the constraints of a programming language continues to advance over uncharted territory, like there are still these these things that have never been tried before.
1: I would say those are the things that I'm most excited about in general. So things like that. And then, I mean, I could go on a whole big tangent about WebAssembly too. I mean, a lot of the times when you create something that is intentionally restricted, like there's there's sort of two benefits. One is the immediate benefit of the thing being like having a smaller surface area and feeling simpler to use, easier to learn. Those are the benefits that I think you feel kind of immediately. But then there's yep. also the benefits that are sort of unknown, where there are things that are unlocked that were ruled out previously because of like things that you couldn't as safely assume to be true. So I think hmm. a good example of this is the the way that uh, elm does like html.lazy. I mean that's something that's only really safe to do and only can really be reliable if you have the absence of side effects. Uh, I think react actually introduced something like that called I want to say use memo. I, I I remember reading about it and then thinking like yeah, I mean, that totally works as long as you don't have side effects. And if you do have side effects, uh, that's that's really not going to do what you want it to do. Um, <laughs> and you're going to have problems. So the idea that you can have actual reliability around certain things like that and say like, yeah, this is a completely safe optimization to do. The only downsides are that it uses a little bit of extra memory and all that because you have the guarantee of no side effects is really interesting. And I've been thinking about this in terms of like WebAssembly garbage collection too. I think there's some really potentially exciting stuff there as well, but, uh, yeah, it still remains to be seen what, what browsers themselves are going to do with WebAssembly garbage collection. So a lot of tangent mm. potentials this
0: <laughs> talk
1: so far already.
0: <laughs> That's all right. Uh, enjoying the tangents. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll send you on another one, which is uh, Elm Events. I, I, you, you strike me as someone who gets to go to a lot of Elm Events around the world, and, and yeah. we probably haven't checked in on how those have been going. What recent events have you gotten to go to, and how were they?
1: So this year I have been to three Elm Conferences and I'm about to go to the fourth in Mm. like a week. Uh, So that would be Oslo Elm Day was the first one. Uh, I want to say that Mm -hmm. was in February. That was great. That was the second year they put that on. Some of the highlights for me were um, just among all conferences. They did something super great at the start, which was really cool, which was, it was like, you know, it's February, it's in Oslo, it's uh, Norway. Um, It's it's not, uh, you know, warm outside uh but they really made the best of it they did like a a toasted marshmallows and chocolate thing like out front so even though it was cold outside there was a significant chunk of people who were hanging around outside around the fire like toasting marshmallows it's like hey you know this is great this is worth like it it being a little bit cold
0: that is amazing
1: that that was also the first multi-track elm conference which was really cool they they had uh two different tracks and um speakers for each one at at, like all throughout the day and yeah, it was a blast. Like, I had a, I had a great time the first time around, and I had a great time the second time around. So, yeah, uh, hopefully, they do a third one. Second conference of this year was Elm in the Spring, which is the first time they've done that in Chicago.
0: I'm sure some of our listeners, like myself, are dying to hear how that went, because two episodes ago, we had a panel of conference organizers, and um, oh, Blake yeah. from Elm in the Spring was one of them, and he was like a week away from his first conference. <laughs> and uh, I, I've been in suspense ever since. Oh, well, well, past Blake will be pleased to hear that it went off completely without a hitch. Uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, it... it I, there were a number of talks from that that I, I really enjoyed. I thought the uh, the level of presentation quality at both that and also Elm day I, I thought I was like, man it's it's uh, they're just like really setting a new bar. Um, I mean, I, so this is I guess my what fourth year of of going to Elm conferences and it seems like every year people have been getting bigger and better and just kind of like outdoing previous years. Yeah, I mean th- that was no exception. I was like, wow, this is uh, you know a first time conference like first time organizers. Um they're organizing in Chicago, which is a, a Midwest conference that's, you know, like has some overlap with uh ElmConf US, which is, you know, about to have its fourth year, uh, which is in St. Louis, you know, which is like a five hour drive from Chicago, also in the Midwest. And yet, like they still managed to to put together a great program. Um yeah. and I, I think like you know, the the talks from there were outstanding. Uh there were a number of like Uh, first-time speakers that just really knocked it out of the park i love that event it was great Uh, i I also am a little bit biased because i really like chicago style pizza
0: oh controversial
1: well it's controversial because some there's like a rivalry between like chicago and new york and stuff but like i actually just like both of them but the difference is that now that i live like driving distance to new york and i go to the new york l meetup i have new york style pizza all the time uh whereas (laughs) i i rarely get to have chicago style pizza so that was a treat for me um, oh, right. Other conferences. And so what else? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so most recently, uh, Elm Europe. So this is the third Elm Europe. Um, also went great. Uh, spe- Okay. So if I'm, if I'm being honest though, like conference food wise, it's really hard to compete with Elm Europe because they just have like <laughs> baguettes and like, uh, like French like cheeses and, yeah. uh, as I pronounce it charcuterie, but they pronounce it much better. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's just like the, the the food game is like really hard to top, like when you're in Paris and, and the organizers are like, let's get Paris food.
0: CIBO reached out to me at the last minute and said, Kev, uh, I don't know if you can make it, but if you could, we would love to have you as a volunteer for the conference. And it's the hardest no I've had to give. Uh, like, flying halfway around the world on a week's notice was both exciting and completely impractical for me at the time yeah no that's that's, i i totally
1: get that i mean it's 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 tough like i would love to i've never been to australia and i would love to Mm. go but it's it's yeah it's it's a long flight i i completely understand
0: we'll get our conference soon then you'll have to be here (laughs) yeah i i
1: that hey hit me up if that ever happens yep you bet
0: but yeah so uh yeah so elm
1: europe went great again um i made a a tactical error, which was that... So Tebow asked me, like, at some point early in the year if I wanted to do a workshop again. Like, so mm. last year I did an advanced Elm workshop. And I, like, was kind of like, uh, I don't know, like, maybe, let me think about it. And then eventually I finally said yes, like, way too late, like, with no notice. So we got, like, two people responded to it. And it was like, oh, that was that was a mistake. <laughs> but other than that, I mean, the, the conference itself, like, the conference proper uh, went really well. And actually, there was a cool workshop. Um, They did a game jam the day after the conference, uh, about like climate change with like ca- oh, wow. that theme. And so, uh, they ended up making a really cool little game. It was like a really simple strategy game where you kind of, uh, the, the idea was like, your goal was to grow cities, but like the more you grew the cities, there was trade-offs as far as like environmental impact. And so you're trying to maximize, like getting the most growth with it, with like while minimizing environmental impact. And, and it was yeah. like, yeah, pretty pretty fun little game. It was like the graphics were all emojis, of course, because they only had a day to, to build it. <laughs> but it was cool. Like I, I I tried my hand at getting a high score, but did not succeed at the end of the day.
0: Something that occurs to me about a lot of these events is like it feels like in the past year, we've moved past the era where every Elm conference uh, was keynoted by either Evan or Richard. And it, we're starting to get, like other voices in the community start to be able to take the big stage for the keynote. Did you get to watch any keynotes at these events that uh, particularly stood out for you?
1: Keynotes specifically, okay, so definitely the one that stood out the most is uh, Mario Rogic um, yeah at uh, at Elm Europe. So his talk was so so most Elm talks tend to be about front end type stuff. Um, mm. But Mario's talk introduced this project that he and Philip Hagelund, um and somebody else whose name escapes me right now um, have been working on called Lambdara, which is basically a way to say, what if you could have your Elm front end and then basically write like a limited form of Elm on the back end? I, I don't want to like spoil the talk. Their premise is very ambitious, uh, which mm. very much appeals to me. They're not like aiming for like, hey, what if, you know how like Elm compiles to Node, we're just going to write Elm wrappers around Node APIs. It's like way beyond that. It's like wrapping up all of these things that take a lot of work in programming in general, dealing with databases and so forth into like one very simplified, broadly applicable, but not universally applicable paradigm where it's like for most applications, this is probably something that you can just use and it will make your life a lot better It won't necessarily solve every problem, but wow, is it a really cool solution for problems where it fits.
0: I haven't seen the talk yet, and it sounds like I have to and get Mario on the podcast (laughs) to talk about it. Oh, 100%, uh, yeah. Circling back to what we were saying earlier about a a limited set of managed effects, is that what we're talking about for the back end, basically? Like what is a small set of things that the runtime could handle for you so that you can focus on what's special about your app?
1: Uh, not really about the runtime so much as like the the way that they're doing data management. Right. I I really don't want to steal his thunder. I just want to give a <laughs> shout out. <laughs> like, okay. Well, there you go, uh, yeah. listeners. I'll Ch- put the yeah. I'll put
0: the link in the show notes and um, have a look because we might have Mario on to talk about it in a little while if he's uh, if he's kind enough to accept my invitation. For sure. Well, I think it's time we talked about your book, uh, Richard. Yeah. <laughs> so Elm in Action for the listeners. You can head to manning.com slash books slash elm dash in dash action. And you can buy the book for a great big 40% off for listeners of this uh, podcast. Yes. You can use the code podelmtown19. And I am told that will work for all of Manning's products in all formats, so even if you just want the ebook, if you want to pick up a second book while you're at it, uh, make use of that discount code and you'll save yourself some money. Yes. Uh, so uh, looking at the page right now, it still says MEAP on it. Is that because the book's like still not yet printed?
1: Yeah, uh, so it, it won't get completely finalized until I submit the final draft of edits. Um, and basically, like, literally what I'm doing right now is going through and looking at, like, people leave a lot of comments, like, hey, mm-hmm. this is unclear to me. Like, uh, Manning has this thing called Live Book where you can go and leave comments. There's an author it's forum. So
0: cool. As someone who's yeah. been in technical publishing before and has, you know, put a 300 page tech book out into the world with no one apart from the editor having read it this feels so much better
1: (laughs) yeah it's it's really cool um dealing with the volume of feedback is is kind of a challenge because there's there's a lot of it you know it's like oh wow yeah and some of it's like oh there's a typo here and that's very quick to fix but a lot of other stuff is like oh i found this confusing and then i have to look at it and be like well okay uh could I change this? Should I change this? Am I? Yeah. Is this change going to make it less clear for other readers, et cetera, et cetera? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of that, um, but I definitely appreciate it. So I, I'm very thankful to all the people who have taken the time to to give the feedback because ultimately it helps me make the book better.
0: You must probably have a fair bit of feedback accumulated just because of the, the lifetime that this book has had in draft form.
1: <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I, I, I really appreciate everyone's patience uh, with this book because I there were some people who bought, it, bought the book like three years ago and, and are still you know, waiting for their physical copy. Actually, when I originally submitted the, the table of contents to Manning, like the proposed table of contents, before it was even like, approved that you know, the book was going to happen, Chapter 7 was Signals.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's great so it's <laughs> chapter
1: seven now uh i think it's i think it's called data modeling um, all right okay but yeah it's
0: not signals certainly because uh yeah.
1: it's it's yeah
0: <laughs> not a thing anymore elm has changed a fair bit and your book has changed along with it yeah absolutely
1: um i mean we've gone through yeah when i first started writing it it was sixteen, and then went through seventeen was a big change but i was uh i mean that that's been like the big breaking change in of like all elm releases really i was a bit fortunate in that when that happened i was i think partway through writing chapter two or three or something like that which is basically just introducing like syntax and types um yeah so there really wasn't i guess chapter two has elm architecture stuff but so maybe it was chapter two when that happened because i remember thinking like yeah this is this is actually no sweat for me from the book perspective
0: and uh, probably a, a bit of a relief as someone who is trying to teach uh, a language to first timers for the the hardest part of the learning curve to be reworked. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I
1: used to do Elm workshops. Um, I mean, I still do, but uh, as Mitch Hedberg would say, but I used to too. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, so when I did workshops on 16, that was always the hardest part of the workshop. Like everyone yeah. got lost at signals. Honestly, now it's like the, the hardest thing for people to wrap their heads around is currying and JSON decoding. Like those are really the, the only two things that where people kind of get stuck like by the end of the workshop, they're like, uh, I kind of get it, but I maybe need some practice before I get it.
0: Talk me through the relationship between the materials for your workshops and the book. Are they one and the same? Is, is the book a distillation of what you teach in the workshops? Were you trying out material in the workshops and then putting it into the book? Was it the other way around?
1: That's a great question. Believe it or not, they're actually totally separate.
0: So if I've seen your front end master's course, that's not like your book is not a transcription of that.
1: Yeah, no no relation whatsoever. So with the most recent revision of the front-end master's course, uh, what I did is I actually based it around the Elm SPA example. And so the format of that workshop is basically, so I will say that the curriculum is in the same order. So I teach the concepts in the same order, like the scope and sequence as it, as they call it is the same. What's different is that in the front end masters workshop, basically I'm starting with the Elm SPA example. And at first the beginning few, um I don't know, lectures, I guess is the wrong term. Yeah. I don't know. The first few sessions uh, are about building a page in that from scratch. So it's like, okay, pretend you got, you know, a request from your boss to say, let me, let me build this page. Um, and you're building it up from scratch. And that's where you're learning the basic syntax and whatnot. And then uh, as you go along, uh, at some point it transitions and it says, okay, now you understand the language well enough that our next project is going to be fixing a bug or implementing a new feature or something like that. Right. And then it shifts to the format is here is a chunk of existing code that you're kind of dropped into and there are some comments saying like okay you know make this change here or like there's a bug here fix this or like there's some to-do comments that say like to-do make sure you uh, make this work and so the the exercises are pretty much small edits that you're making kind of from there on out Uh, and the reason that i did that was based on feedback from a coworker who said that in his experience uh, learning elm so he learned elm I want to say like two years ago, um, after we'd been using it for a long time, and he'd mainly been working on the back end, and he said that after he learned Elm at No Red Ink, where we have like you know three hundred some odd thousand lines of Elm code, it's a huge code base. He learned by being dropped into that huge code base and pairing with people on it, and then later he went to some Elm meetups and, and started trying to teach Elm to people from scratch using a small example, and he thought that was actually a harder way to learn, in his experience
0: yeah everything is a special case, and you you don't really see the what what is common between all examples
1: and, well and the big thing for him was that he said that with elm like things are different, and in a big code base, you immediately understand why they're different because you uh, see the value like you make yep. a change and you're like, oh, the compiler just tells me about all these like weird edge cases in other parts of the code base that I had no idea were there, but it's just like pointing them out to me, and then once I get everything once I satisfy the compiler everything just works and that's yeah. really magical but when you have a small project every new piece of code you write works like there's <laughs> nothing there's no you don't get that magical feeling and so it feels more like well this is different but why like it's different but like I'm not feeling any benefit from this yeah and so for him it was it was really motivating that Although things were different, every time he learned a thing and every time he made a change, he could immediately see the the, the value of Elm in a larger project. Um, so, based on that, I wanted to try and give people a sense of that in the uh, the Frontend Masters project. That's Elm SPA example, right? That's that's kind of the foundation of that. The, the actual the first iteration of Frontend Masters I did was was pretty different. I mean, it, it was also different from the book, but uh, that, there it was uh, building up a thing called Elm Hub, which was like GitHub, but for Elm things. And it was like yeah. you build up, you talk to the GitHub API and whatnot. But I, I thought this was more effective. I, I, I think the second iteration of that workshop is uh, is better in a, a number of ways. But so for the book, so I guess taking a step back, I, I, maybe I should start with like, what were my goals for the book? Sounds good. I had a really tough time getting into typed functional programming i i really struggled with it i was convinced by uh, my friend deech he, he and i used to work together and we'd go to lunch together and i was like a front-end guy and he was a back-end guy um and he was really into yeah he deech is just a connoisseur of programming languages um <laughs> he, he, he's like into like haskell and but also like all sorts of lisp varieties and uh shen is maybe his favorite programming language uh which is like a Typed functional Lisp, where like you can, as wow. he put it in one of his talks, like it, you can launch the missiles from the type checker, <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> the type checker is Turing complete. It's like it's really wild. Uh, he gave a talk about it at Strangely. I uh, did here two or three years ago, but but he would talk to me about programming languages. He really kind of like expanded my mind and, and introduced me to all these languages that I didn't really know about. For me, it was like, wow, CoffeeScript is is really a <laughs> a wild different thing. It's a whole different yeah. syntax, you know. And so I. Was convinced, you know, by these conversations with him over over many lunches, that uh, I should give Typed FP a try. Uh, but the problem was that I really liked building UIs, and uh, there just at the time weren't really any options. Uh, the most prominent in that day and age was—I want to say this is like 2012, 2011. So Elm existed, but at the time, it, if you went to the homepage, it really looked like it was primarily for games and like three D stuff—a
0: graphics programming language.
1: Yeah, so I I didn't really think that I would be able to use it like for any of the projects that I was working on. But the main thing was uh, Roy, which is a a now defunct language that Brian McKenna started. Um, And as I recall, he got stuck on trying to make the record system work. um, And he couldn't, like the the type checking around that, I guess involves row polymorphism, which is, I guess, uh, a hard thing to implement. I don't know, having never done it myself, but.
0: Well, that's what I hear about Elm is that the the extensible records are, are the hardest part of the type system
1: behind the scenes I have no idea honestly uh, but at any rate I don't know if they work well to use. <laughs> yeah so so I was I was really kind of like cheering for Roy and then that but but at the same time I was like the reason that I wanted something like that was that the way that I learn is always by doing. And all of the resources I could find for like type pure functional you know, programming languages were all really theory heavy. So it's like, and basically when I say type pure functional programming languages, I basically mean Haskell and Idris. And then at some point uh, PureScript came out and the introductory materials for PureScript were very much in the same vein, which mm-hmm. is to say that the way that they teach it is by starting with theory first and then they get to practice later. It's yes. all about let's, let's hang out in the REPL for a really long time and we'll talk about types for a long time. And then eventually, we'll actually build something. Um, And I've just never been able to learn effectively that way. I totally appreciate
0: that some people can. I'm the same way. I had a professor at university who said, look, they're making me teach you Java. But first, I want to show you a functional programming language, just so Uh you know what it is. And so he taught us scheme and we spent like two months solving problems in scheme. I loved the intellectual challenge of solving things with FP, but I was really craving putting pixels on a screen, having something that I could interact with after I had written it. We didn't get that until we moved on to Java. And it then took the first 10 years of my career of never touching anything FP before Elm came along.
1: Wow. Yeah, I, I actually had a surprisingly similar experience in college where I, I also took a course uh, that started out with Scheme. It was supposed to be a programming languages course, but honestly, I, I actually ended up deciding to drop that course. I did this thing in college where I would like oversubscribe on purpose and then like <laughs> to drop a couple of courses to get down to a normal workload so I could like try before you buy. And yeah. that was one of the ones I ended up dropping because I was just like, what's all this car and cutter and, and Like, I, mm-hmm. This doesn't like what can I build with this? And then years later I I found out about, I was like, oh wow, scheme is actually really cool and really elegant in a lot of ways. Um, Mm. But I had no idea based on my first introduction to it. But anyway, so I wanted to write the book that I wish that I'd had when I was getting into functional programming. I wanted to write a book where at the first thing that you do as early as possible is you build a thing and then you learn all of the other concepts based on explaining how that thing works and extending it and like doing, doing the types of things that you normally do when you're building an application, like adding new features, refactoring, you know, creating technical debt and then hopefully cleaning it up and, and just expanding it. One of the things that was like very clear to me was, uh, and, and I think this is like you know, somewhat heretical to some people and I, I understand why they have this um, you know, view, but uh, like the word monad does not appear in the book. Uh, the words applicative and functor also don't appear in the book. They're just uh, Control F, you know. You won't find it Command F if you're on Mac. Uh, <laughs> but but it's uh, that was like an overt goal of mine because not only do I think that this is not something that has to be taught, like to learn functional programming, I think it's something that you know at least in Elm, like a, a language that where you know the ecosystem doesn't have this vocabulary. I really wanted to show that, like, no, this is this is not something where you know, if you feel blocked by not understanding those concepts, you don't need to be. Like really, those are those are things, like they're terms that are absolutely beneficial, but they're not required. Like they're they're the types of things where it's like, you know, hey, is it is it beneficial to learn some linear algebra? Yeah, absolutely. Is it required to do functional programming? No, of course not. Can can you learn like category theory? Yes, can it help you out? Sure, potentially. And like, yeah, like knowing what a monad is, like I've used that in conversation with people who I also know, like know what the term is. I talk about like, oh, I wasn't sure if I wanted to make this API monadic or not. And like, they understand what the trade-offs are between that. But as an introductory book, like, I don't think there's any really like reason that that needs to be a part of the curriculum. It just seems like, like really just jumping like five, you know, steps ahead of what a beginner, in my opinion, needs to learn. To me the important things about like uh, an introduction to functional programming are understanding how to build things with all of these things removed compared to other languages that you might have dealt with especially a pure functional programming language. Like I think it's much more important that you're you're able to understand how to make things interactive, how to deal with like in, in Elm's case, you know, FFI is not quite the right term but like interop with with other languages that don't have the same rules. How do you scale things up? Yeah. Um, how do you do data modeling well? All of these things are potentially new concepts. And it's like, on top of all of that, do we really need to discuss, you know, the common term for the this category of things?
0: Like the word accessibility comes to my mind. And immediately for me, that gets me excited because that's one of the reasons people of a certain age, and I would say you and I are probably in this group. We got into the web at a time where the most exciting thing about the web was it was a new form of media that anyone could be a publisher in. And so it was accessible, not just as a user, but as a voice in that medium. So as someone who has had now a a decade-long career plus in front-end engineering, accessibility is still like one of my core values. Anytime we can make something or lower the bar for people to use something to be expressive, that gets me really excited. And and the fact that Elm is a functional programming language that does not require you to be excited about functional programming to find it useful, uh, is is a huge accessibility perk for me. Yeah, absolutely.
1: A uh, thing that's kind of weird to me about this is that sometimes people seem to be bothered by the omission, like the fact that like a beginner book intentionally chooses not to use what I think are more appropriate for like advanced uh, topics. That to me, uh, it's it's weird that people feel almost defensive about that. Like, hey, you're not putting this concept in a book that doesn't need it because people can get through the whole book and learn all the concepts in it, you know, without learning the terminology. And it's, it's almost like people feel protective of the terminology. Like it's, it's really important that you bring it up and tell people about it because if not, I don't know, like what, what happens? Like what bad things happen if, (laughs) if, if it's not in the beginner book and it's only something that people learn about later on. Yeah. I mean, to me, I think good things happen. I think that you get more beginners and more people who are able to learn this way, because let's be honest, there is a ton of material out there on how to learn functional programming the other way, mm. theory first. I mean, is we're overflowing with it, yeah. and there's very, very little material on how to learn functional programming practice first and theory later. Yeah, and so that to me was like kind of my primary goal, and and that led to the scope and sequence of introducing topics that I did in the book and also in. Um, like the front-end master's workshop, I think like, that's, that's just how I'm always going to teach it because that's how I wanted to learn it. And I think uh, there's room for both.
0: Well, that's great. because I think every good teacher does need to come up with what they think is the optimal path to, for, for their teaching style to take someone through a set of concepts. And it would make sense for you to have two different ones for, for two different courses, because in, like I, I put myself in the teacher's mindset and I would go, well, to me, one of those clearly works better. So why aren't I using that for the other one? In the time we have left, I was hoping you could kind of take us on a whistle-stop tour through the book. What are the highlights? What are the things that you found especially hard to write and the things you're especially proud of?
1: So I would say the the things that I found the hardest to write, (laughs) chapter three, like introducing types, I thought was the hardest. The first chapter is basic syntax, kind of like table stakes stuff. Like you got to know how if works or how to write if, I suppose. So chapter one, basic syntax. Chapter two, build an application. So by the end of chapter two, you have a working application that is minimally interactive. Doesn't do a whole lot yet, but it's something that works that you can play with. And then chapter three introduces types and basically goes through and adds types and explains the types for everything that you built in chapter two. So those first three chapters are sort of the the first section of the book. That's like, okay, basics, get up and running, understand what you built. And by the end of that, you're like, okay, now I know how to build a minimally interactive Elm program and I kind of understand the, the concepts that go into it and the types and how they work. Mm-hmm. Um, From there, the book gets into more like, okay, but that's not enough to build like a real full-fledged application. So let's talk about how to like explore Elm's more advanced feature set. So that's things like testing, that's things like JavaScript interop, uh, talking to servers. So I have this progression where I go from Talking to servers first, and then talking to JavaScript, because basically uh, the the way that Elm talks to JavaScript, I like using the metaphor of talking to a server. It's like you're sending immutable data back and forth, and the server's kind of a black box. JavaScript's kind of a black box. So that kind of builds on the, the talking to servers chapter, and then talking about testing. So by the end of that group of three chapters, so this is um, the the next three chapters after the the sort of basic intro part, we're now at the point where we can build a a pretty substantial, interesting Elm application.
0: I'm excited to hear testing comes that early in the book. It's a topic that I've often seen pushed to the last chapter of an introductory book for a language that, hey, you can build things test-driven or you could not. So this is an optional, nice to have. So it'll be at the end of the book. With, with, the top, with the chapter on uh, performance and the, the chapter on, uh, I don't know what, what it might be, security, for example. But uh, like those, you probably won't get to reading these chapters, and that's okay if you don't section. But it sounds like <laughs> yeah. you put testing as early as practical in the book to make it a tool to use from there on.
1: Well, I mean, and I might be biased, you know, having like built Elm tests and everything, but <laughs> uh, I, I don't personally consider testing a particularly optional thing if you're building like, you know, like major applications. Yeah, so that's kind of the second section of the book. And and by the end of the second section of the book, really you're like, okay, you now know enough to like go out and build like real Elm programs. And then the last two chapters are uh, data modeling and uh, and so so data modeling is essentially uh, this is like advice, I guess. Like I mean I, I still tie it into this sort of like over the course of the book you're you're working on the same code base like the one that you start in chapter two, you're just adding to that over and over on the subsequent chapters and building up you know, more and more of a substantial code base. And so in chapter seven, I have sort of a um, a contrived feature. I mean, they're all contrived, of course, like to be like, oh, conveniently, the next feature your your boss is asking you to build is the exact one that's going to let me teach the next thing that I want to teach next. So that's what I said at the beginning about everything coming together. That's probably the thing that I'm the most proud of is that, Every chapter begins with this, like, little narrative about, like, oh, your, your manager, you know, who's kind of a character in the book, <laughs> uh, your manager is, like, is, has asked you to build this particular feature. You know, there are sort of, like, plausible features and plausible rationales for building the features, but I really wanted it to feel like, okay, this is the type of stuff that happens to me at work. Like, someone comes in and says, I need you to build this thing, and so that's what you're going to build next. And so chapter seven is, is a little bit uh, like sort of contrived around that to, to make it so that, you know, you're, you have a reason to, for me to explain these data modeling techniques, which aren't necessarily like immediately applicable. They're not necessarily something that you, you know, are going to need to use like with your very first Elm application that you're building, but uh, they are the type of thing that I think is like really good advice to have and and really good stuff to be aware of. Is this the
0: stuff like uh, making impossible states impossible, that sort of thing?
1: Yeah, in that vein, yeah. right. Um, in, in particular, like the thing that Seven focuses on is um, recursive data structures uh-huh. and like using them for modeling because that's something that I think is is pretty tricky. But if you can understand that and you can see how to implement something in that, I think it hopefully gives you the confidence to be like, okay, if I can understand that and I can do stuff with that – I can probably figure out how to use data modeling to solve, you know, problems that are easier than that, which generally speaking, most of them are. Yep. So I kind of wanted to just dive into like one of the harder ones that is, again, unlikely to come up right away, but which is, I think, representative of the types of things that you you run into elsewhere. And the last chapter of the book, uh, chapter eight, is single page applications, which is, again, not necessarily something that you need right off the bat for your, you know, if you're just getting off the ground. Obviously, if you want to build an SPA, it's it's sort of required reading. I mean, the way that we got started with it at work and the way that I always recommend people getting started is just like one part of one page, you know. So I think it's entirely possible for people to start off with, you know, a pretty big JavaScript application that becomes more and more Elm-like, but with JavaScript still doing all the SPA orchestration for quite a while. So I, I would, you know, consider... (laughs) The SPA stuff to be, in that sense, more optional than the testing sense as far as like somebody getting up and running. There actually was originally I had planned to do two more chapters, one of which was going to be about uh, scaling and the other of which was going to be about performance optimization. Mm. And a funny thing happened, which was that basically scaling, it became increasingly difficult to justify that as as a good topic for a beginner
0: book. And if you've gotten this far in the book, you're probably at the point where you have access to the resources, you know the right questions to ask, you'll be able to teach that to yourself.
1: I think someone could plausibly write, you know, a book or, or a you know, something. I mean, I gave a talk yeah. about scaling. I, I give, I've talked about a number of aspects of that, but... Um, yeah, point being, it didn't seem like it actually made sense. Like when I actually got to writing it mm-hmm. um, a, for a beginner book. And the other one, performance optimization, I actually did write the entire chapter. Um, but the feedback was basically like, from early readers that I sent it to was basically like, yeah, so pretty much this is like HTML.lazy, and then almost none of the rest of it matters because <laughs> nobody uses it in practice. <laughs> like that's just like the thing that solves your performance problems yeah. in practice in Elm at like 99% of the time. Yeah. So like I had a bunch of stuff where it was like, oh, here are like some graphs of like look, let's let's look at the asymptotics of like, you know, dictionaries versus lists oh, and right. you know, all these different scenarios. And it's like and then yeah, no one cares. Like they're all fast enough, it's fine. Like <laughs> unless you have a dictionary with if you have like a linked list of a million elements, okay, probably a dictionary would be faster if you're doing like lookups, you know, with like scanning through to find stuff but i mean who's really doing that it's like so basically i ended up rolling the html.lazy section into the uh, spa section and then the longest chunk of that was explaining how the the comparison works because that's the only yep. place where referential equality comes out so i just made an appendix uh, about that and i just in the chapter it's like hey if you want to know how this works go see appendix b and you can read all about the the lazy change check
0: well, hey, that performance uh, chapter that is uh, now kind of uh, a lost chapter of this book, I think you could probably sell that as a $5 ebook. <laughs> <laughs> well, I,
1: I'm definitely not in this for the money. I mean, it's not. Uh yeah, I mean, this is definitely a book that exists because I really wanted it to exist, and I I hope that it's as helpful for, to people as I, I you know I I wish that it would have been to me when I was just starting out.
0: That's uh yeah, that's a recurring theme to me is like you said, people don't write books for the money. People write books that they wish they had been able to read. Yes, exactly, exactly. Well, I think that's a lovely point to end it on there, Richard. Thank you for joining us and taking us through your book. It's so exciting to be able to say Richard Feldman, the author of Elm in Action, and not be able to say (laughs) it'll be finished soon. Yeah. I know.
1: I mean, uh, well, the physical copies will be out soon. So uh, we could say that, I guess. <laughs> shh, shh, shh. <laughs> all right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> thank you very much, Richard, for joining us in Elmtown today. And listeners, thank you. It's you that makes Elmtown the place it is. So please reach out. Let me know what you like about the show, what you'd like to be different about the show. It's a good time for me to be getting your feedback as we uh, kick off a new set of episodes. I'm all ears. And uh, if you have ideas for getting, if you know someone who's done something cool in the Elm space, let me know who they are so I can chase after them to be on an episode. Thanks again, Richard. Thanks for having me. Bye for now.